like to say greetings to, oh, there's the camera back there, all of the people out there in, in uh, Cyberland or wherever it is that you are watching. And greetings to all of you, especially those of you who, uh, because of uh, circumstances of your own, that you would, uh, are not able to attend services regularly here. But uh, also, I suppose there are a few others that were here this morning that are tuning in as well, uh, just as some of you probably tuned into the service this morning. The uh, telecasts have been doing extremely well. Mr. Uh, Jacob Hall, who gave the sermonette, is, uh, I guess he is our lead editor now, and he has others that are helping him, so I don't want to take away from any of them. But the uh, responses that we're getting have just been terrific. Uh, we've had uh, the one I had on, I can't even remember what it was, a couple weeks ago, uh, about 6,700 and something responses. The one by Mr. Ames uh, will be well over 6,000. We don't know what the final is on that, but uh, it's going to be well under the 6,000 plus. It was uh, four short, and we didn't have all the international areas uh, recording and the one on end of America. What a what a timely topic by Mr. Smith. From what I've seen so far, it should be well over six thousand. It might even reach seven thousand. I don't know, but it's uh, it's produced a, a good strong response for the first day. That's uh, I look at the re- record there, and it doesn't tell us the it doesn't tell me the internet responses, but the telephone responses have been very strong, and. Uh, so we're, we're looking forward to that. You know, God is, seems to be doing something right now uh, with his work, uh, things that we cannot explain, things that we're not doing all on our own. I know that we've put forth a lot of effort. We've improved certain things. We have uh, gotten on more stations. But God is the one that can magnify our efforts, and he seems to be doing that. And even this last week we received information. I'm not going to go into the details of it, but... Uh, we, we received uh, some information about a very large sum of money that will be coming to the work uh, this year, apparently. Uh, part of it has to be logged for last year, so we're going to have an extremely good year from last year. You know, we used to talk about a 15% increase, and we're, we're going to see much greater than that, uh, you know, last year and, this, and the year to come, I think. Uh, we can't predict the year to come, but... Uh, I think that we, we just need to realize that God is doing something, and we're trying to figure out what it is. Uh, we're, we're saying, here's all this, this money that's been coming to the church, and the regular tithes and offerings of co-workers and donors, then some of these special, uh, you know, either estates or, in this particular case, royalties from past programs that were aired uh, in addition to what we... Well, we contract for, in other words, we contract for a station for a certain time, and then they have slots that they have to fill, and when they do that, that's a bonus for us, and then they have to pay us to do so. And uh, it's, it's just really remarkable how much that, that accumulates too. But God is trying to do something through us at this time. And it's not a time to think, oh, we're rich and increased with goods. You know, back in days of worldwide, they talked about 30% increase, and everybody thought that's wonderful. If we talk about that, somebody say, oh, well, you're laid us in, you're, you know, you're, you're uh, rich and increased with goods. Well, we don't think we're in need of nothing. We are, as Dr. Maris said, about half peanut shell in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. 
We are so tiny. We are so small. The world is so great. And getting the gospel to the world, we need to pray that God will open up the right doors. We don't want to throw money out there after anything. We want to use the resources God has given to us wisely. But we need the prayers of all of you that God will open doors, that he'll show us what it is that he wants to do, what he is working out. There may be something coming up this year that we, we could never foresee. But one thing we know is that within the last year or so, this world has taken a, a jump in the direction of the end of the age, and God is providing for his work in a way that we never would have imagined. So, uh, brethren, let's uh, be sure to be praying about all these things. But I hope you'll watch the telecasts that are coming out. Uh, I think that uh, they have continued to improve the quality of them, and people are noticing that, and occasionally we get notes from people that they're noticing the quality of our program. I'm speaking of the editing specifically, and we do appreciate that. Uh, God is, is working something there for us. You know, scriptures use some interesting expressions in the Hebrew and the Greek languages that we're not always able to understand in the English language. Uh, th there are words that and phrases that are difficult to translate into English. And so sometimes not knowing the Hebrew, not knowing the, the, the Greek language, uh, we may miss some little thing. Now, I don't think that we're missing anything that's really big and important. I, we, there are things like uh, words for hell or Hades that are important for us to understand or so. There are some of those things that we uh, have recognized historically in the church. But there are other things that may be a little bit minor in comparison. Uh, and, and sometimes we can learn from things and sometimes we don't know it and it doesn't really matter in the long run because we're getting the big picture. When you read through the book of Acts, there are a lot of details that we, we don't know about. Uh, Luke is very sparse in his words. He, he just gives us the bare necessity and doesn't explain everything. But he gives us enough, God gives us enough, that we get the message that we need to have. But I'd like to cover uh, two scriptures, one in Hebrew, one in Greek. Uh, one is Old Testament, obviously. The other is New Testament. The expressions are separated by the better part of a millennium. And yet these messages are very closely related. And the first one is found in 1 Kings 18.21. The other one is in James 1 and verse 8. So today I'm going to show the relationship of these two passages, the message that they contain for us today. Uh, and in them we'll find a powerful lesson, especially for those of us living at the end of the age. And... I used to not be much for titles. Mr. Ames always wants us to have a title. Uh, the, the specific purpose statement is always tells us where to go, but I've learned over a period of time that if you don't give a title, whoever's recording that, you have no idea what they're recording, but usually it's something that is totally away from what you are trying to say. So uh, this is a double-minded man. That's my title if you want a title uh, for this today. Let's go to 1 Kings 18, 1 Kings 18 and verse 21. We'll start out there. We'll, we'll cover the first one, 1 Kings 18 and verse 21. Now, this is where Elijah had called for 
a drought on the land for three and a half years. And the king at that time was Ahab. Ahab was not a very good king. In fact, uh, let's just go back a couple pages here to the 16th chapter. We'll, we'll start there just to get a little bit of background about who Ahab was. And we'll begin in verse 29. It says, In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Asa was a good king, Ahab, the son of Omri, now Omri was not such a, a good king, but he was a very powerful king. And our literature on the United States and Great Britain and prophecy uh, talks about Omri and how he had a great influence on the nation. He says, he became king over Israel. This is uh, Ahab, became king over Israel. Ahab, uh, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. So these were the northern ten, tri- ten tribes. And he was there 22 years. You know, that's a long time for a ruler in, in many respects. Uh, you can do a lot of good or you can do a lot of harm in that period of time. When you think about the last four years, for, for good or bad, I mean, you, you could wet it whichever way you want to look at it. It's been a long four years in a lot of respects, hasn't it? Uh, but think about 22 years in leadership position. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. It was a very wicked king. And it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. That's where he changed the holy days and uh, probably the Sabbath as well, you know, from the Feast of Tabernacles to the eighth month. And he set up idols in the north and in the south to short-circuit the keeping of the feast for the people going down to Jerusalem. He introduced idolatry and so forth. It says that he, uh, this Ahab followed the sins of Jeroboam, and uh, also that he took his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. So he introduced, in a very big-time way, the worship of Baal. And he married this woman who was the uh, son of, really, of a priest in reality, uh, of Baal worship, and she was... Even worse than he was. We think of Jezebel. We think of just about the worst kind of woman that you could possibly have. There was another woman in Scripture that uh, also was uh, known for her uh, her wickedness. But certainly Jezebel was. Then he set up an altar, verse 32, for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. So he set up a temple there, put Baal, an image of it, an altar for Baal. And Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did more to provoke the eternal God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. He literally provoked God to anger by the things that he did. Now, understanding Ahab is, uh, it takes a lot because he was a very complex individual, uh, a very weak individual in, in many respects. But at the end of his life, he, he repented and turned, and, and God uh, was merciful to him. But let's notice over in the 19th chapter, and verse 1, it says, And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. This was after the context, contest between 
Elijah and the prophets of Baal and the, the, the prophetesses and so forth uh, of Asherah, or prophets of Asherah. Uh, after that incident, where called fire down from heaven, then he went home and he told Jezebel about it, what he had done, and how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Now, there's an interesting uh, sermon that you might want to check out, a couple sermons there uh, at our website, lcg.org, where uh, Mr. Carl McNair, uh, who, who died many years ago, uh, a couple sermons that he gave in the early 2000s, early 2000s or thereabouts. And uh, very interesting when you look at the times in which we are living today from a political perspective. He talks a little bit about what happened down in Florida in the election there. And we've seen a very similar situation in recent times here. Uh, there may be differences, but nevertheless, he, he talks about that a little bit. And he's also really referring to a time when there was a lot of confusion in the church, first of all, coming out of worldwide, and then the uh, situation between global living that, that occurred there. And he doesn't necessarily mention all those things specifically by name. He doesn't use a lot of names that way. But you can read between the lines of, of some things that are happening. But he goes into this passage here of uh, Elijah, uh, fleeing from Jezebel because it says here that after uh, Ahab told Jezebel about it, Ahab wasn't going to do anything about it, but Jezebel called out the army, as it were, and it says, Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of the, them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, and when Elijah saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. And then he went on from there, knowing the character of this woman, as Mr. McNair explains. And just go to the lcg.org website, and they're, they're right up close to the front there. And, and he, he talked about how Elijah understood the character of this woman, and going to Judah was not far enough. He went on from there. He understood the danger that was there. And I think he points out something very well, that does this mean that Elijah was a coward? No. Elijah knew what was at stake there. Did he know God could call fire down from heaven? Of all people, he certainly knew that. But he also understood that the job that God had given to him at that point was, was finished. He wasn't sure exactly what was next. But he was smart enough to recognize a danger, to be prudent about the danger, and get out of town. Just as Jesus, uh, in John the seventh chapter, understood the danger and stayed away from uh, Judah at the time, or from Jerusalem, he did go down to the feast, but he went down very quietly. He didn't just show himself before that, because he knew that his time was not yet. And so both these individuals exercise a certain prudence there. Now, this is the, the kind of individual that we're dealing with here in Jezebel and with Ahab. Let's notice also, I'll just refer to it, the dealings with Naboth and his vineyard. We're very familiar with that. You can read of it in 1 Kings, the 21st chapter. I'm not going to go there. 
for, for sake of time. But you can check that out and you can see what kind of a person uh, Ahab was and even more so what kind of a person Jezebel was who set up false witnesses to have Naboth killed so that they could take over his vineyard so that Ahab could have a vegetable garden. And this is the, the, the circumstance that we're dealing with here. Now, with that background, let's look at the 18th chapter and verse 21, where it says here in 1 Kings 18:21, Elijah came to all the people and said, this is after the prophets of, of Baal, uh, or, or they, they've been brought together here, and he proposes this context, and he says, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the eternal is God, follow him, but if Baal, follow him. You're faltering between two opinions. Now, this is a, an interesting expression here when you look at it in the Hebrew, and I, I've talked about this before, but I'm going to read a couple other commentaries on this as well. This one is from Adam Clark's. When it, the expression, how long halt you between two opinions, it says literally, how long hop you about upon two boughs? Two branches, kind of like the, the birds that were talked about in the sermonette here. Interesting, I was watching some sparrows this morning. Uh, I like to look out the window uh, when I get up. And then, of course, during breakfast, we can look out the window. And my wife had these, uh, what are they called, butterfly plants. And they're supposed to attract butterflies. But they also attract hummingbirds and uh, to a lesser degree than, than butterflies. But the, the sparrows come in at this time of year, and they, they pick the seeds off because the seeds are left behind. It's, it's kind of an ugly plant at this time of year, but there's food on it, and just watching them flip from branch to branch there. And so how long hop you about upon two boughs? This is a metaphor taken from birds hopping about from bough to bough, not knowing on which to settle. Perhaps the idea of limping through lameness, in other words, halt, limping through lameness, should not be overlooked. They were halt. They could not walk uprightly. They dreaded, it says here, Jehovah, which we don't use that. It's really a, a corruption of uh, the Tetragrammaton, but nevertheless, I'll just read it as his here in Adam Clark's. It says, they dreaded Jehovah, or Yahweh, Jehovah, as they say, and therefore could not totally abandon him. They were afraid of God in a certain sense. They feared the king and queen. Now, that's why I gave a little bit of background why they would fear the king and queen, because they were very bad people. And therefore thought they must embrace the religion of the state, the state religion, which was uh, Baalism. Their conscience forbade them to do the former. Their fear of man persuaded them to do the latter. But in neither were they hardly engaged. So they, they couldn't make up their mind between the state religion of Baal that was being enforced by basically a, a woman, uh, Ahab, probably didn't have the guts to, to deal with these things, but he went along with his wife. And yet they also knew something about Yahweh or God, the God of what we call the Bible or creation. Uh, that's from Adam Clark's commentary. Let's look at another commentary. This one is Jameson Fawcett and Brown. 
and that expression, how long halt you, it says, they had long been attempting to conjoin the service of God with that of Baal. This syncretism of ideas, this blending of it, is that not what we see today in people supposedly worshiping the God of the Bible, but then they have Christmas, and they have Easter, and they have all these pagan ideas, uh, ideas about infant baptism because of a misunderstanding and thinking of the immortal soul and that we better save this baby who can't repent, who can't understand what's happening. It's foolishness when you really think about it. We're all based on a false assumption. They had attempted to conjoin the service of God with that of Baal. Elijah proposed to decide for them the controversy between God and Baal by an appeal, not to the authority of the law, for that would have no weight, no weight with the people, but by a visible token from heaven. Since fire was the element over which Baal was supposed to preside, he proposed that two bullocks should be slain, and on whichever the fire should descend to consume it, the event uh, should determine the true God, whom it was their duty to serve. The controversy, therefore, did not consist in a direct opposition between the worship of Yahweh and that of Baal, for the latter party, like the pagan in general, tolerated the worship of other deities along with their own favorite idols. Now, you see that in Hinduism. They have multiple gods. Uh, you know, very interesting, we, we sold a, a vehicle in Canada. It was a... Uh, uh, the, the man that was in Canada before I was wasn't able to get his vehicle across the border. They, they stopped him there. And so we traded vehicles, and I had that vehicle. And, and uh, at, when it came time to, to uh, turn in or to get rid of it, uh, we looked around, and there was a, a dealership that specialized in these vans. It was a, a caravan of some sort, Dodge Caravan or something along that line. I don't remember exactly. But this person would give us the best offer. He was uh, from India. He was Hindu. And uh, it was the best offer we had of, of any offers, uh, rather than trying to just sell it to a private party and, and so forth. But it was getting there quickly. And so I went down there and dropped it off. And he invited me upstairs where they had these idols and images there. We sat down and talked for a while. And in the process of the conversation, he said, well, when it sells, I'll send you a gift. And so I thought, okay. And it was months before it sold. But all of a sudden, we got it, or I guess it was months, because it was months before I got a check in the mail. I thought maybe he'd send us 50 He sent us $700. But here was someone who respected the fact that I was a minister of Christ, but he had his Hindu gods and various other ones, and they would have their worship service up there, upstairs, above the the, the floor room of this dealership uh, every day or twice a day. I don't know how often, but anyway, their employees would go up there and they'd have their little worship service. But he was quite okay with Christianity. And it is true that many of the pagans, they, 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 they don't have loyalty to just one. They have a multitude. You look at the Greek gods. They worshipped all kinds. Like Zeus and, and uh, uh, you, you know, Paul. Remember that Barnabas was one. Uh, Paul was another. And they had 
the worship of Diana, which goes by a number of different names, and you have all these different gods and goddesses, they're fine worshiping a lot of gods. But that's not the true God. God does not want us to worship in that way. So, like pagans in general, they tolerated the worship of other deities along with their own favorite idols. So, the children of Israel had fallen into that attitude of mind that they could worship both. They feared God, but they feared the state religion, and so they they couldn't give up either one of them. They hung on to both. The New Bible Commentary Revised, which I've read before, But I'll read it quickly here. It says, it seems to be literally, till when are you hopping at two forks, like two forks in the road? The sin of the people had been not in rejecting the worship of Yahweh, and already they still worship God, but in trying to combine it with the worship of Baal. Such syncretism is always considered to be broad-minded, whereas the other is narrow-minded. But Yahweh of Israel left no room for other gods. We've all seen these bumper stickers, haven't we? Coexist, and it has all kinds of different religious symbols for the letters for coexist. You know, the, the T is the cross, and I can't remember which ones all, they all are, but it, it tries to encompass all religions. Now, we should treat people of all religions with respect But we don't embrace all religions, do we? Because we know that God does not want that. He doesn't accept that. So here is an example in the Old Testament where the people were trying to split the difference. They were trying to satisfy everybody at the same time. When I say everybody, essentially in that case it was two different groups. But we have others who try to satisfy a lot of other people. You know, there are a lot of people in this world that know that Christmas is a fraud, but they can't give it up because of the children. When in reality, if they teach their children the truth, their children would accept it. Especially if they go to the feast and do the other things, they they accept that. Now, you know, kids like presents, we understand that. But usually it's the parents more than it is the kids, but we always blame, well, the kids. I've got to do it for the kids. Lie to them for the kids' sake. Let's go over to the New Testament, James, the first chapter. James 1. And we'll begin in verse 6. James 1 and verse 6. He says, well, let me go back to verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The the book of James has more to say about being double-minded But nevertheless, this particular place that we're reading from, Adam Clark has this to say about it. He says, the man of two souls. Now, we're not talking about immoral souls, but two two souls. Who had one for earth, one desire for the earth, and another for heaven. Now, we understand 
heaven in this context, well, you know, their context is going to be different than our understanding of it. But our citizenship is reserved in heaven. In other words, it's talking about one foot in the world and one foot with God. And I heard a sermonette by a young man some years ago where he was talking in a heart-to-heart. It wasn't a sermonette. It was a heart-to-heart speech at Spokesman Club where he grew up in the church and he had one foot in the world and one foot in the church. Now, as he saw it, he had his foot in the church, but he just had one foot there in the world just in case he was missing out on something. And he had to realize that in reality he had one foot in the world and he had his toe in the church, something along that line. And he realized that he couldn't have it both ways. This is exactly what this is talking about, being double-minded. And how many of our young people, and I'm not ragging on you young people at all. I, I love young people. I spent many, many years at the summer camp. I'm really getting excited about summer camp this year. Uh, I'm not, not going to do it for very many years, but uh, at least one year, because I, I want to see it uh, going in a certain direction, a very positive direction that we think that we can uh, bring into it. And so I love young people, but you have, we, I say you, we all, because we were young too, we had to make up our mind which way we're going in life. Are we going to follow our friends, or are we going to follow what we know is right and good? I faced that when I left the Worldwide Church of God. I had all these people calling me up, because I didn't know where I was going. I, for three weeks, I was sitting out there trying to sort things out. All I knew is I was no longer going back where the, the, the church had gone totally astray. And, and so I'm out there, and every day I'm getting calls from sometimes my friends, sometimes people I know or didn't know, but they were saying, whatever you do, don't go with Mr. Meredith. And at, at some point in time, I had to ask the question, am I going to follow my friends and these other people that I don't even know down a path where I do not know where it's leading, because there wasn't that other church out there at that time, but there was a lot of talk about it. This was March the 11th, the last sermon I gave in Worldwide on 1995. And a, a much larger organization kind of rose up on May the 2nd of uh, that same year. So this was before that. Am I going to follow my friends or am I going to look at the facts? Where is the church that God is using to preach the gospel to the world and to feed the flock. And I could see that Dr. Meredith and those who were with him were going the right direction. They were doing the right thing. And so am I going to just follow my friends out here into who knows where, or am I going to do it the other way? And, you know, for a period of, of a couple weeks, uh, I, 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 was, I was popping from bow to bow. I'm trying to figure it out, trying to sort it out. And, and it doesn't mean that it's wrong that we ever are in that situation. Uh, maybe it, it should have been that I should have been, you know, spiritual enough that I would have known instantly what the right choice was. But you get pulled in different directions, don't you? Whether it's fear of the king in Baal worship or whether you're just trying to sort out what do I do next? 
And once I asked the question, that question, the critical question, what am I going to do? Am I going to follow my friends or am I going to follow the truth? It became very, very clear instantly. It became clear. And I knew what I needed to do. And that's, you know, that's a, that's a, a struggle for, for a lot of young people. And we all, at some point in time, had to make those decisions, whether we grew up in the church or whether we didn't grow up in the church. Am I going to do what the Bible and my Creator, the one who can give me life eternal or can kill me forever? Am I going to follow Him and His ways? Or am I going to follow my friends? I'm going to, you know, the crowd, my peer group. I'm going to go out in the world and just have, quote, fun, which never quite turns out the way that one thinks it's going to turn out. But so many people have to try it and prove it for themselves instead of learning from the heartache and suffering of others. He says here, the man of two souls, who has one for earth, another for heaven, who wishes to secure both worlds, he will not give up earth, and he is loath to let heaven go. This was a usual term among the Jews to express the man who attempted to worship God and yet retained the love of the creature. A man of this character is continually distracted. He will neither let earth nor heaven go, and yet he can have but one. I was reminded of uh, this the other day. I actually gave a very similar sermon to this over in uh, Fayetteville last week. And I, uh, I was reminded of many years ago, actually it was during the 80s, I don't remember the exact year, but I was up in Asheville, North Carolina. I know nobody would know this person, but um, there, there was a woman who, who lost her husband, and she met somebody who was a lawyer, a very successful person in this world, but he was not in the church. And I, I remember counseling with her and trying to explain that she couldn't have both. You want to follow God, you want to follow, you want to get married and, and you know, go out of the church. She wanted both. Now, sometimes people do marry like that and they still keep coming to church, but it doesn't work out the way that they really think it's going to in, you know, 99% of the cases. I'm not sure what they expect in, in those things, but uh, nevertheless, she couldn't obey God because God's command is very direct that she's free to marry, but only in the Lord. So she would violate God's command, so she couldn't obey God, and have the other, but she didn't want to give up either one. She didn't want to leave the church. She didn't want to, she didn't want to disobey God. And she made that very clear. Well, I want to obey God, but I want this. And this is the, the state that sometimes we find ourselves in. And in this case, a man of this character, a woman of this character is continually distracted, neither letting heaven go nor, uh, Yet he can can have but one, neither earth nor heaven. In Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, it says, uh, again, double-minded is double-souled. The one soul directed toward God, the other to something else. Not a hypocrite, but fickle. Not a hypocrite, but fickle. Now, I, I would take exception to that. 
the person is a hypocrite because if the person is claiming to obey God, there is no other way. But what the emphasis there is, this person is fickle, wavering, opposed to the single eye. And it refers to Matthew 6, verse 22, about your... Well, let's just turn over there. Matthew 6 and verse 22. It says, The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good or whole, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, it's a reference there, but if you look at the two verses that go before it, he says, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, Verse 21, three verses actually. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then notice down in verse 24, right after the statement about the lamp being the, uh, of the body is the eye. It says, no one can serve two masters, for he either, either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. It's really talking about the physical things of this world. If your eye is single-minded, as opposed to, you know, some people have the goal, they want to be rich. Remember, again, so many lessons come back to me from just right up there in Asheville, there seven years. And uh, I remember for the first time in the Church of God, I heard people talking about, well, my goal is to be a millionaire by the time I'm thus and such age. And most people who are successful in this life that I know of didn't set out to be rich. They set out to do something that they they loved and they wanted to do, and they just did it better than anybody else. And the money came as a, a bonus. It just came as a byproduct of doing the best they could at something that they loved. But I, I was shocked that there were people growing up in the church, that that was their goal, to become rich. That really should not be our goal, because that's our goal, and we just focus on that. It's going to be distracting. Remember when Mr. Armstrong talked in his autobiography about the clay project, how he got so involved in this, this clay that was, you know, had certain medicinal purposes and everything, and he just got so involved in that. And he fasted because he had been praying I think it was for his wife's healing at the time, and, and, he, and he fasted, and, and he realized he had gotten distracted by this clay project instead of focusing on doing the work of God. So when it says here that uh, a double-minded man, it speaks of, of how he becomes distracted. Let's notice James, the fourth chapter, because here's another reference in the book of James that talks about being double-minded. James 4, verse 7. He says, Therefore, submit to God. 
Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We have to resist the devil. In other words, resist the pulls of the devil. Resist the attractions that the devil puts out there for us. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded or doubled soul. Double-souled. Where we are pulled apart in two different directions. Sometimes we have to make up our mind, or at some point we have to make up our mind, which is it that we want. Now, there are other scriptures that teach us uh, similar messages. For example, Revelation, the third chapter. Revelation 3. And we'll look at verse 14. I think we know where this is going. But in reality, we're dealing with people who are double-minded. In verse 14, Revelation 3, And to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, These things says the Amen. The Amen, the so be it. He doesn't say the Amen and the a woman. Um, that's so bizarre, really. Uh, you know, you know, the... the that, that's the, uh, he was the mayor of Kansas City. His name is Emmanuel Cleaver. That's the prayer that he gave at the end. Of, most of you are familiar with that, I think. At the end of the uh, opening of the 117th Congress, and he said, Amen, and a woman. Now, Amen means so be it, or something similar to that. And yet he was trying to make a statement about, polit- you know, politically correct, we can't leave women out of this, so I think we should refer to him as e woman you all uh well because it's e man you all so we we need to add the w o there and when we talk about maintain uh when well, no, i forget how to spell that better not on the top of my head uh but but mention uh, we'll mention. I mean, we, we might as well put w o in front of everything that has m e n m a n before it and then we'd all be politically correct, wouldn't we? Now, you talk about crazy. Here's a minister of Jesus Christ, supposedly, he's not really, a Methodist minister. And he's going to add something to the prayer to be politically correct uh, in, in that age. And, of course, he also prayed uh, to, to Brahma and uh, various uh, the gods of various other sorts, he, the prayer was very ecumenical. And that would be seen as, oh, this is just uh, inclusive. Can you imagine Mr. Smith getting up here and, and thanking God for you know, all these things and mentioning Brahma and Vishnu and, and uh, Buddha and various other gods? I don't think he'd do that. No, he's, he's, he's very quick to shake his head. No, he wouldn't do that. We know he wouldn't do that. None of us would do that, would we? It is absolutely insane the way our world is going today. But that's another story. But here it says that the the Laodiceans, uh, these things says the amen. The the so be it. The one that is not double-minded in reality the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, I know your works, you're neither cold nor hot. 
I could wish that you were cold or hot, so then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now, they're neither cold nor hot. In other words, they're not turned off toward God. They, they worship God. As we read in the 12th chapter, they have the testimony of Jesus Christ and the commandments of God. They keep the commandments and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. But they're left behind to go into the tribulation because they're, they're double-minded in reality. Neither cold nor hot. They, they, they want this. They, they are afraid not to be uh, keeping the Sabbath and the holy days. And in fact, they may even, quote, love them. But the problem is they love other things too. And they don't have their whole heart in doing the will of God. They are, in that sense, they are double-minded. Back in Second Kings, the 17th chapter, 2 Kings 17, there's a passage that confuses people. Sometimes we have to explain it to people. And I think that in this context, we, we have the right explanation for it. Uh, we've explained it this way, but just not tied these other scriptures together with it. But in 2 Kings 17 and verse 24, this is after the house of Israel has gone into captivity. They've been taken out. Then verse 24 says, Then the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Cutha, Ava, Hamath, and from Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. So they moved the Israelites out of the northern area, and then they moved the people where they're going, they moved them into Samaria. And they displaced them, and that was that, that, that uh, took away their... You know, a certain loyalty. There are, there are a lot of reasons for, for doing something like that. It, it totally destabilized the people. And it says they, they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in this, its cities. Now, these were the people who became known in New Testament times as the Samaritan, Samaritans. And when you read Ezra and Nehemiah, you see the conflict that took place between the Samaritans and the Jews, and you understand why there was so much Conflict in the New Testament there at that time, but that's, that's another story. Verse 25, and so it was at the beginning of their dwelling there that they did not fear the Lord or the Eternal. So they came in, they didn't fear God. Therefore the Eternal sent lions among them which killed some of them. And so they spoke to the king of Assyria saying, the nations whom you have removed and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the rituals of the God of the land. They saw that various lands had different gods. And that's why, you remember that story where uh, the, uh, the the general for uh, uh, Hayden or whoever it was, the, the Syrian, took back a load of dirt uh, to build a, uh, a, a an altar there in, in Damascus because he was taking part of the land of Israel back with him. He saw that uh, God was in that land. And so they saw it that way, and they saw that, well, okay, uh, this situation is such that we don't know the, the, the mannerisms of the God of this new land that we've been moved into. And so they asked the king to, uh, to help them that way. And so the nations whom you have removed and placed in the city of Samaria do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Therefore, he has sent lions among them, and indeed, 
They are killing them because I do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Verse 27, so the king of Assyria commanded, saying, send there one of the priests whom you brought from there. Let him go and dwell there and let him teach them the rituals of the God of the land. So the children of Israel went into captivity because of a corruption of the worship of God, the true God. And so now they're going to bring back one of the priests who had this corruption and bring him back and teach them that. And so now you have a real mixture of truth and error. But nevertheless, that's what happened there. And so they brought this priest back. Then one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the eternal. Or certain things about the worship of God. Now, to what degree... He understood the true worship of God is really very, very questionable here. Unless it was one of those that was really teaching the truth and, you know, was just taken away. Who, who knows for sure. But it says, verse 29, However, every nation continued to make gods of its own and put them in the shrines on the high places which the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities where they dwell. The men of Babylon made Sukkoth, uh, Benoth, the men of Kuth made Nergal, and the men of Hamath made Ashima, or Ashima. And the Avites and all these others uh, made gods of their own. Now, this helps us to understand what the New Testament was dealing with, with the Samaritans, with all their various gods there. Verse 32, this is the point. So they feared the eternal... And from every class they appointed for themselves priests of the high places, from every class. So obviously this is just a tremendous mixture of truth and error. And yet by the time of Christ, they thought they were, you know, they were worshiping God on Mount what, Ebal or Gerizim up there. Uh, that they looked at Jacob as their father because certain amount of the truth had slipped through to them. But they really didn't worship God. So they feared the Lord. And verse uh, 33, they feared the eternal, yet served their own gods, according to the rituals of the nations from among whom they were carried away. To this day, they continue, they continue practicing the former rituals. They do not fear the eternal, nor do they follow their statutes or their ordinances, or the law and the commandment which the Eternal had commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel, with whom the Eternal had made a covenant and charged them, saying, You shall not fear other gods, nor bow down to them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice them. But the Eternal who brought you up from the land of Egypt with great power and an outstretched arm, him you shall fear, him you shall worship, and him you shall offer sacrifice." So, in reality, it says that they, they, they feared the Lord. And then another scripture says they didn't fear the Lord. In other words, these were people of a double soul, a double mind. They, they, they were afraid not to worship God as they had been told, no doubt in a very corrupt manner. But they did not want to let their God, the gods of their upbringing and their nations go either. So there was this syncretism between 
the worship of God and not. And so it says, well, they feared God, but they really didn't fear God. Because if they really feared God, they would have gotten rid of all these other gods. That's really what we're dealing with here. It's not a contradiction at all. It's just saying, yeah, they, they feared God to a certain degree. But they really didn't fear God because they wanted to hang on to their gods, and that's not acceptable with the eternal. God is not pleased with a lukewarm, double-minded, hopping-between-two-forks attitude. He wants us to be convicted, zealous, and wholehearted in our relationship with him. We are to love him with our whole heart. That's what it says in Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40. Jesus said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. We cannot, especially as we get close to the end, brethren, now, I mean, always this is the case, but especially in the world in which we live today, we cannot afford to be double-minded. We cannot afford to have one foot in the church and one little toe out in the world. And the way that we entertain ourselves, and the way that we communicate, for example, and I've talked about this quite a bit on the Internet, we, we can't be a part of this world. We can't get caught up in all the conspiracy theories that are out there. You know, I've written an article, I think maybe it's an article that I've written on this subject, but those of us who have been around a little bit longer and been in the ministry have seen these things come and go. You know, back in the early 70s, mid-70s, it was Illuminati. Now, that keeps cropping up from time to time. The Illuminati. Back in the 50s, even the church allowed ourselves, we were young, you know, young ministers and, and writers for the magazine, and, oh, you know, Hitler didn't die. He's alive in Argentina someplace. You know, they had an actual article on that. Uh, kind of immature, in a, in a sense. We, we understand. We, we make mistakes. But all of these conspiracies, now you've got this QAnon. Boy, I can step on some toes on that because there are people that believe in this stuff. And yet, when you just stand back and look at it, this is so far beyond the pale. You've got theories and ideas about, you know, I better not start mentioning names, but certain, certain bad guys are always out there. And they're, they've got all these plans and, you know, the, the COVID is, is very real. Some people think it's just a big hoax. It's not. It's real. We know people that have gotten and have died. We know others who have been very, very sick from it. Thankfully, most people, it's a mild case. But there are real people dying from it. Are there individuals in this world, politicians and media and people behind the scene that are exploiting this crisis? Absolutely. Never let a good crisis go to waste to promote their ideas. But we cannot get caught up in all these things. You know, as, as one minister said, there was somebody came to him about various conspiracies and said, okay, what if it's true? What are you going to do about it? Our job is to preach the good news of God's coming kingdom and to warn this world. That's our job. So if some conspiracy out there is true, 
What difference does it make? What are you going to do about it? Do they want us to change and then start preaching that conspiracy? Because, wow, we're going to do something the world hasn't already been able to do? We have a unique message. It's not the message that is being brought up by the world. Is God going to reveal something that is so important to us through some nefarious source out here, somebody that you've never known before on the Internet, that somebody says, well, this person is really on target? We cannot afford to get caught up in the things of this world at a time when the world is just about ready to explode. This is going to be a fascinating year, a fascinating year for those of us who survive it. None of us know who will and who won't, but it's a fascinating year. Uh, It's already started out, interestingly, but God is doing something. Something has changed in our world. It's not the same as it's always been. We're told by Jesus, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, not be double-souled, but all your soul and with all your mind. Now, this love is shown by action, by the way that we live, not by what we profess or some feelings in the heart. It's by how we act, what we do, whether our heart is truly in the work. Are we truly praying for God to open up doors? Are we praying for one another? Are we praying for the the, the churches around the world, the, the specific countries that are suffering? You know, we've had it pretty good here in North Carolina. Got an email from somebody over in England. They haven't met since March. Not allowed to meet uh, in, in that part of England since last March. This is already halfway through January. Be a year before very long. People in California, I don't know when the last time they met. There are people that are so locked down they, they weren't able to keep the feast. Now I suppose some people say, well, you just go out and you keep the feast anyway. Well, where are you going to keep it? You've got to have a venue. And depending on where you live, it's not always convenient to meet outside. It can be very cold in some parts of the world. And there are people who enforce these things with guns, these laws. It's not like here in the United States. We have brethren that need our prayers. We are also to love our fellow man in similar fashion. But lesser. In Luke ten twenty seven it says, And your neighbor as yourself. Jesus gave us a new commandment in John thirteen thirty four to love one another, as I have loved you, you also love one another. How are we serving one another? Are we looking out for one another? Are we giving somebody a call? Are we visiting somebody if we are able to visit them in a safe way? Or, or just giving somebody a call or Skyping somebody and letting them know we're thinking about them, we're caring about them. Brethren, these are things that we ought to be doing. And yet we have to put God before man, as it tells us in Luke fourteen twenty six. We must also love the truth wholeheartedly. We can't mix truth and error. We can't allow ourselves to go out here and and listen to people that God has not called to reveal his truth. 
Second Thessalonians 2, verses 9 and 10. It says, but they, they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. There's coming a time when a, a powerful religious leader is going to perform false miracles that are so real that people are going to get caught up in it. And if they're believing every other conspiracy or every other idea out there, why wouldn't they believe that as well? We must have zeal to do the work. In John 4.34, Jesus said that his food was to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And we know that he had great zeal for the job that God had given to him. We must have similar zeal. You know, life is made up of choices. And when it comes to God, he expects us to make a wholehearted choice. He expects us to have both feet in doing his will. Both feet with him. Hopping between forks, trying to serve two masters, being double-minded or lukewarm will not satisfy God. He's not going to be pleased that we worship him, but then are halfway in the world or even, you know, a quarter of the way in the world. We live in an age of distractions. Boy, we live in an age of distractions. I, I find it difficult. You're trying to do something and Bing, there's something. Oh, i got to check that out. You know, I don't know about you. I am easily distracted. I'll, I'll confess that. I, I find it very easy to be distracted and hard to focus at times. But, brethren, we have to learn to focus. And, and when I say easily distracted, I don't mean by all these ideas out there, but I, I mean just on a, you know, minute-by-minute minute basis. Um, it's easy to be distracted. We live in an age of distractions. Satan has been a master at giving us so many things to get us off track. It takes genuine effort to stay focused on the big picture to which each of us have been called, to do the will of God, to do the work of God. Much of the key in developing a genuine, much of the key is developing a genuine relationship with God. That means that we have to take time for prayer, for Bible study, for meditation, for fasting occasionally. We have to take the time to have that relationship with our Creator. That has to be right up front. But also we must be willing to look in the mirror, to look in the mirror and say, okay, what am I doing wrong? What are my weaknesses? What is it that I need to change? Where am I coming up short? We can't just say, I'm okay, and everything's okay, because it's not. Now, I, I don't mean to say that, that all of you, any more than myself, I mean, we're all a bunch of uh, reprobates and all, you know, straddling the fence on, on various things. I, I don't mean to say that, but I'm just saying these are the things that, the, the potential that is there to distract us and to get us off track. We have to have that relationship with God, but we also must be willing to look in the mirror and say, you know, I'm addicted to this. Whether it be social media or whether it be something else. I remember a woman telling us we were visiting with her because there were problems that were coming up on social media that she was sharing things that she shouldn't and we had to talk to her. And she said, whatever... I do. I will never give up my, I don't know, Facebook or whatever it was. That was chilling. I will never, 
And yet Christ said, if your right hand offends you, cut it off. If your right eye offends you, pluck it out. There are certain decisions we have to make. How we respond to this challenge that we have will determine whether we are double-minded Laodiceans or truly dedicated Philadelphians. The stakes could not be higher. So I hope that we will think about these things. I hope we'll look in the mirror. I hope we'll try to figure out what makes me tick and what am I doing and what are the choices that I'm making. Because our life depends upon it. Our eternal life depends on it as well as life in the near future.